source. Consider the source. It basically means that if you're sharing a story with someone, you're talking to someone, you're chatting to someone, maybe it's about something that's on the news, or maybe you saw something on Facebook, or you're talking with another person and you heard about something that was happening down the town, or, or maybe you're talking about another church, or this church, or a person, and then the person you're talking to says, yeah, okay, but consider the source. In other words, what they're saying is, look, I, I don't see any reason to fault the message, but the question has to be asked about it because of the messenger. You question the message because you've got questions about the messenger. If you get your information from a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who heard it from another guy, it's probably been amended a couple of times along the way. Or maybe you've got your information from someone who's very upset and biased and is speaking from a position of hurt and very sort of one-sided opinions. Or maybe you're speaking to a salesman who's trying to get you to switch an electric company or a phone company or some things to sign up for. So you consider the source. Because a questionable messenger means the message also is questionable. You never are quite sure if you can wholeheartedly take for granted what they're saying to you, simply because you're not too sure about the person who's saying it. When Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, he is a messenger who is having questions asked about who he is. And so often we think of Paul as aloof or detached, uh, confident, maybe even arrogant, some sort of angry academic who's kind of always thumping pulpits and sort of hellfire preaching and all the rest of it. The truth is, yeah, I mean, he definitely had that side to him. He, he was a lawyer by trade. Uh, he was trained as a Pharisee. He was a smart man. He was that in that kind of company for a lot of the time. But in this letter, with all the issues that have been going on between him and the church in Corinth that we talked about this morning, in this letter, he kind of opens up a little bit. The walls come down and we begin to see not, not so much Paul the theologian or Paul the, the church planter, but we see a wee bit more about Paul the man. We see the emotional side to him. Because uh, it's less really about theology, Second Corinthians, and really more about him sharing his heart. Someone said this letter is just a heart open wide. Now, among many of the things that he talks about that he's trying to address in this relationship, um, he addresses some of the troublemakers from before, from First Corinthians. Uh, you see, the leaders in the church have been very keen to just kind of overlook sin. Just look, listen, nobody's perfect. It's fine. We're, we're going to show the world we're different by loving them, by embracing them, because that's the gospel grace. It's all forgiven. And First Corinthians even tells us about a guy who uh, he could well have been in leadership, and he was having this incestuous affair with his father's wife. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, guys, no, no, you've got to address this. You've got to talk to him about it. And if he's not going to listen, you've got to put him out of the church. You can't allow this just to go on. And it would seem that at this point, he's repented. He's one of the people that's repented. And Paul will go on in this letter and say, okay, now is the time to restore this guy. Now is the time to bring him back in. Now is the time to love and to accept after repentance. 
But one of the quirkier reasons for, for Paul writing was that he had to address, he had to explain himself to the church about his travel plans. It seems strange, but apparently it really hurt the Corinthians' feelings that Paul didn't show up whenever he said he would. And so, uh, let's put it in context. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, I, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I want to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide doors for effective work has opened up to me, and there's many adversaries. So he says, okay, look, I've, I've kind of got a plan here. I've got, a th I've got an itinerary. The plan is Ephesus, Macedonia, and then winter with you guys. Um, then it doesn't quite work. We know that he called in with them first. Uh, there was this painful visit, which didn't go well. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 1, look, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. So you may have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you from Macedonia and send me on my way to Judea. So he says, look, okay, so the plan now is, look, actually, I really wanted to kind of do this double visit, call in before Macedonia and then after Macedonia. Uh, and then, so he's kind of went from plan A to plan B. I'm not sure if he's back on to plan C now, or is he back to plan A, or some variation of it. And there was confusion. Well, what's Paul really doing? They're struggling to kind of keep up with him. Now, here's the thing. Paul had to call in with them straight after that first letter, 1 Corinthians, because of all the nonsense that was going on. And the painful visit went so badly that Paul didn't want, he couldn't face them before Macedonia. It was too hurtful. His heart had been broken. And so he now switched on to plan C or, or A. This was the confusion. Nobody knew, could quite make sure what, what, what's the plan. Either way, the visit to Corinth before Macedonia didn't happen. It didn't seem to happen after Macedonia either. And the people in Corinth are really hurt they felt like Paul was messing them about. Now, I'll be honest, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. I definitely don't like being messed around that way. You know, when people say, you know, these people say, oh, yes, yes, of course, we'll do, we'll do that. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll make plans. We'll go out. We'll meet up. We'll do something. And then half an hour before you're supposed to meet up, you're already in the car and says, oh, yeah, I'm not going to make it. Right, okay, are you going to be 15 minutes late? Maybe. Right, and then you're sitting for 45 minutes. Are you coming? No, probably not. Right, okay. Uh, it's frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating. Right, I mean, I'm happy enough to be flexible to a point, but then see when it continually happens and it's the same person and they're still messing me around and it's time after time and time. At some point, there's what, sure, hopefully it's not just me, but hopefully we'd all kind of just go, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to make plans with you anymore, all right? If I bump into you or if, yeah, yes, okay, that's fine, but I'm not going to rearrange my whole day around meeting with you. Um, Ruth has got friends like this and uh, who um, are shocking at never following through on plans. 
I, I can't be handling it. I just say, Ruth, listen, when they're at the door, you tell me and then I'll do something about it because until that point, I can't trust that they're actually going to show up or show up two hours late or something. See, in Corinth, these false teachers had ruled in claiming to be from Jerusalem and claiming to be uh, better than Paul. And they were using this wee um, mix-up to bash Paul's reputation, to build up their own fall. <laughs> Typical Paul, he, he's so untrustworthy. He says one thing and then he does another. He doesn't really care. If he really cared about you, he'd have shown up when he said he would. You can't trust a guy like that. You can't trust Paul. See, what they've done is they put a question mark over the messenger. He'll say whatever to please people, but he doesn't really mean it. You can't trust Paul. Don't believe a word he says. See, it's so often it's easier to attack the messenger than the message when it comes to church. Now, this whole thing tells me something. Be careful when you make plans. Someone once said, if you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans. See, when we make plans, we should always make them with a P.S. That is, P.S., I'll, I'll do this, God willing. Right? I mean, that's what James 4 teaches. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's what James 4 is teaching us. But when you go back to 1 Corinthians 16, that's exactly what Paul does say. He does say that. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So this first chapter of 2 Corinthians is Paul having to explain himself for not showing up when he said he would. He said, I would like to this if God plans. But God had other plans. But the church in Corinth weren't prepared to let Paul away with that. Isn't it frustrating when Christians fall out over the stupidest stuff? And that's really what this is all about. A simple misunderstanding. But don't, don't you find that whenever there's a bit of a strain on, on a relationship, if, if you're not quite sure if that other person's quite pulling their weight in the relationship, and then they maybe let you down, and there's this misunderstanding, it becomes so much bigger that, that uh, these relationships come strained and hurt, um, misunderstandings become hurts. And then hurts lead to people huffing. People who dig trenches and they define the other person by what they perceive to have happened. I mean, uh, there, there's times where um, I, I maybe have to help resolve issues and maybe just settle things and pretty much a hundred percent of conflict or tension in relationships it starts by people saying well they said this i never said that i said this no you didn't i heard you you said this all right and it's all that he said she said it says well you're lying you're telling lies and i'm not telling lies you did say that this is what's happening here but actually what Paul said was, look, I, I wasn't trying to lie. I wasn't trying to deceive you. I said, I'll try to be there. But what the Corinthians heard was, I promise I'll be there. And the whole thing seems to have just been manipulated and twisted. And 
it became so big whenever it was just a misunderstanding. That's the overarching problem here in the text. And this is common today still, and it divides people still today. So let's, let's get into the text. Picking up at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Paul's critics are attacking his character. He's untrustworthy. He said this and he's doing something else. And this is why it feels so personal for him. It maybe isn't so personal for these other guys, but it's personal to Paul because they're attacking his character. Now listen, every church leader, okay, and it's not just me, I'm talking about our elders and deacons here, and I'm talking about every other church congregation as well. So often church leaders can die a death of a thousand cuts. Because everyone in church will have different ideas of what their leaders can be doing, should be doing, and to the standard to which they should be doing them. It comes with the territory. And the hard bit is then just trying to establish reasonable expectations. Jeff, you're supposed to do this. Oh, all right, okay, right, well, let me, uh, Jeff, you're supposed to do this this way. My bad, okay, sorry, certainly. Uh, uh, sorry, Jeff, no, no, you're supposed to do this this way at this time, so not yet, do it. Okay, no problem. Oh, Jeff, just before, you're supposed to do it this way at this time, and you're supposed to do it this often. Right, okay. And, you know, it's a steep learning curve, uh, but what I've realized is that there are things that, personally, I'm gifted in, and qualified to do, and need to do. And I've learned there's some things that I'm really not gifted at doing at all. And I really have no business being near the thing. I remember, certainly in my last church, I confessed this, and everyone went, yeah, Jeff, you are pretty bad at that. I said, well, why'd you let me do it for so long? I said, well, I kind of just figured you were supposed to be the one doing it. There's research that came out uh, from a California university a few years ago, and it compiled the congregational expectations of a pastor. The research revealed that if a pastor did everything that he was expected to do, the amount of times that he was supposed to do it, when he was expected to do it, he would work 135 and a half hours a week. So I think I'm a part-timer at best. 135 and a half hours a week leaves a man roughly with four and a half hours a day to get eight hours sleep a night, to eat his meals, to spend time with his family, to spend time with his friends, and to form habits and uh, socialize and all the rest of it. This is what's happening to Paul. He's doing his best. Uh, he's got tied up with things in Ephesus. There, there's issues there. there. There's stuff going on there. And, and it's really consuming a lot of his time. 
that he wasn't able to fulfill the things that he thought he was going to be able to do. But the people in Corinth are annoyed at him because he didn't visit them on time. We spoke this morning about the stuff that he was dealing with in Ephesus and the fact then that he's trying to go through this and then they're going, Pauline, you said you'd be here. I must have just misheard him so much. Going, really, guys, is this what you're going to complain about? I found the following description of the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor will preach faithfully the word of God, but only for 15 minutes each service. He makes 400 pounds a week and gives 100 pounds a week back to the church, but drives a new car, buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, you know, but not too fine, and has a nice family. The church will scrutinize them daily, of course, for they must be a perfect reflection of how a Christian family should be, although not too perfect in case they become unapproachable. The pastor must always stand ready to contribute to every other good cause too and help those who drop by the church on their way to somewhere else. He's 36 years old and has been preaching for 40. He is tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of a way, and handsome. He has eyes of a blue or brown, depending on the occasion, and wears his hair parted in the middle. The left side is dark and straight, and the right side is brown and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with the youth and therefore spends all his time visiting the senior citizens while filling the church with new young families without changing the things that the older members value. He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all his time evangelizing non-members, and is always in his study if you need him. Aren't you glad I meet that criteria? Verse, Paul, verse 12, Paul saying, look, can't do it all. Can't do it all. But we've behaved with simplicity and sincerity. He's saying, look, I'm not a complicated guy. I'm not trying to do things and, and then manipulate things. You've read something into what I said that I never intended to say. Just take me at face value. That's the boast of his conscience. I'm the same guy on the inside and the outside. I'm not saying one thing and meaning another. I'm not trying to play politics in the church. I'm not trying to curry favor with people. You don't have to overanalyze everything I'm saying and trying to read between the lines all the time. I'm a face value kind of a guy. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted, to co- I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Uh, after after the, the troubles, he wanted to come and preach the gospel again uh, and to anchor them again so that they might find that joy and that, that freshness again. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. I wanted that to happen. It's not, I, I didn't say it because I wanted to deceive you or trick you. I wanted it to happen genuinely. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. 
Paul's saying, like, was I being fickle? Was I, was I being uh, indignant, manipulative? Come on, you know me. You've heard me speak. You, you, I'm not like that. Here, here's a lesson, folks. See when you make plans? It's, and it's good to make plans. Ask my wife. Nothing I love more than having a plan. See when we get together, again, again, it's, it's her side of the family. It's her side. It's everything. Um, it hurts my heart because and my head because, you know, they're just so casual. So what's the plan? Ah, sure, we'll just see what happens. And I just sort of die a wee bit inside. It's good to have plans. It helps us be constructive. It helps us to be efficient. It helps us to be thoughtful. It helps us to be good stewards. We are supposed to be good stewards. We are supposed to be good ambassadors. It means we need to be thoughtful and have a plan. So we make our plans, and then we do what Christians ought to do. We bring them before God, and we commit them to Him, and then we go forward to try and execute those plans. But we do so being flexible. This is my plan, God willing. And that's the hard bit, isn't it? It's hard to be flexible. Let, let, let's say you, you plan to have coffee this week with someone, and you haven't seen them in ages, and they are such a dear friend, and you've been really excited for the last sort of week and a half, two weeks since you arranged it, and you're so looking forward to having this coffee with them. Or, or maybe you've a round of golf arranged with someone, and you're excited about getting this round of golf in. Happy days. I'm really looking forward to this. And then just on your way to the coffee shop, just on your way around to the golf, you, you meet someone who needs your help. Or, or your, your phone goes and it's the, the prayer partners group and there's someone in the church that needs your help and actually you, it's right up your street. It's something that you could do. It's something that you could provide. It's something that you could respond to. What do you do? What do you do? Do you say, well, you know what? I made plans and I am a man of my word. I am a man of honor. I am going to go and have that coffee. I'm going to go and play that round of golf. I'm going to go on that shopping trip with my friends. I made the plans and I'm going to do it. And you say, God, it's really your fault for time and all this. I'm going to be inflexible here. Maybe you come even disillusioned with God and saying, you know, I mean, why? I mean, come on, we have plans. Why now? Why this? This can't be your will for me right now. This can't be what your will for me is. And we talk about the will of God. Remember what God says in response to that? He says, well, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. Paul didn't know what God's will for his life over the next few months was going to be. But neither did anyone else. You've got to be flexible. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. What Paul is saying here is that as a Christian, he's not trying to be a politician. He's not trying to f uh, say what's popular and then just never follow through in his campaign promises. He's not a Christian chameleon where he'll say one thing to fit in and then say another thing to fit in with another group. Verse 17, he says, do I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He says, look, I've always tried to be upfront and honest with people. I try to be as transparent as possible. Yes, I had plans, but guess what? God had better plans. That doesn't make him untrustworthy. It makes him obedient. And the truth is, God leads us one step at a time, one day at a time. Of course, 
we need to be wise with our finances and wise with the opportunities and all of that. But we always want to plan with a P.S. If the Lord permits, I will do this. Now, people talk about making a, a yearly plan or a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. And if you speak to the musicians and, and some of the other guys, they'll, they'll, I'll tell, you know, they'll say, look, Jeff will send an email out and say, look, here's the map for the preaching between now and, well, I have a rough idea of what's happening between now and Easter. But they'll also tell you that within a half hour of sending that email, <laughs> they might get another one saying, actually, here's what's happening. Or uh, a couple of weeks later saying, okay, I know we're planning this, but actually we're going to change it around. We're going to... Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Here Paul is saying, look, this church that you're a part of in Corinth was built on the message of the gospel that we brought to you. So is this, it's really weird that you've accepted our message but are now questioning us as messengers just because our plans changed? Just because we're involved in another church that, that you're now taking this all seriously? All of a sudden our message is, is good but we're not? Surely the message is only as trustworthy as the messenger considered the source. And the, yet these are wonderful, wonderful verses. Paul here is saying, look, you can't trust us. We've been consistent just as Christ, who is our message, is consistent. Jesus is God's divine yes. All the faithfulness revolves around him, around Jesus, because in him all his promises are yes and amen to the glory of God. So will God send a Messiah to redeem our souls in Christ? Yes, and the church responds, Amen. Will, will there be an end to suffering and famine and wars and evil in Christ? Yes, and the church responds, Amen. Uh, will will, will righteousness, righteousness reign again on the earth in Christ? Yes. What Paul is doing here is he's lifting the church's eyes off himself and onto Christ, who is so much better and so much worthy of their focus. Okay, so just follow this train of thought. The church is pulling itself apart because they found themselves obsessed with Paul. Is Paul the best teacher? Well, I like Cephas. I, I like Apollos. Uh, is he trustworthy? Does Paul like us? Does he love us still? Is, is he huffing with us? Is he coming to visit? When's he not coming to visit? Does he like our gifts? Does he like your gifts more? Does he? And they're obsessed with Paul. And this church in Corinth is so immature. And they're falling out over lesser things that they shouldn't be falling out over. And so he points them to Christ. Humans have a really bad habit of elevating other humans. We love a celebrity. 
We love lifting people up who, who excel, whether it's a sportsman, a celebrity, whoever excels gets celebrated. And it happens in church. The best speakers, the best worship leaders get the book deals. They get the record albums. They get the concerts. They get the TV time. While the faithful caretaker get, gets ignored. While, while the person who, who does the Bible class doesn't get thanked. Jesus never, ever said, pick up your cross and follow other people. Jesus said, you've got to follow me. This is Paul's remedy for a hurting soul, for a wronged soul. Listen, you've got to get your eyes off other people. You've got to get your eyes off people in the church and get your eyes on Christ. There is the faithfulness. There is the yes and the amen that you're looking for. Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So I love this. Okay, in verse 23, he's saying, you want me to come? Listen, you should thank your lucky stars that I didn't get there because I was angry. <laughs> and if I got to you whenever you wanted me to get to there, I'd have let you have it. He says, You're, you got off the hook. you got to thank God because I, if I came to you whenever you wanted me to, you'd have been in for it. God did you guys a favor there. But on this other hand, what Paul does instead of this passive aggressive thing is he reveals four things that God does for us when we fix our eyes on him. So if you're hurting, let me just finish the service tonight by saying, okay, here's why you need to get your eyes off that person who's hurting you, to get off your eyes off the people who, who you're fixating on, who's making you angry, who's making you bitter, who's getting you frustrated, who's maybe putting you off coming to small groups or coming to church or getting involved in some of the ministries. Here's what you need to do. Get your eyes on Christ, and here is why. He strengthens unity. God says he establishes us with you. He doesn't say, I establish you, and then separately, I establish you, and I establish you. And he says, no, no, I establish us and you. Sorry, us with you. God is very passionate about the unity of his followers. Remember in teaching us to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, we have the same Father. We, we belong to the same Father. We are brothers and sisters. He establishes us together as a family in him. Unity. Remember um, his great priestly prayer in, in John 17? Uh, and there's that wonderful prayer that he's praying just hours before he's arrested and crucified. What does he pray for? John 17 verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for the unity of the church, unity of believers. He does not want division. Satan loves division in a church. Now, listen, God has promised that he will build the church. Not even the gates of hell will, pre uh, will prevail against him. So I'm not worried about that. All right, God's got that sorted. He's going to build the church. I'm worried about people in the church hitting the self-destruct button. <laughs> 
you're determined to tear it down again. How do we achieve unity? By everyone listening to the Father's voice, fixing our eyes on him who is the head of the body. I don't know if you've ever had a body part fail you, whether you've broken a bone in your uh, leg. Um, I've, I've torn ankle ligaments. I've broken ro- uh, my leg playing rugby and football and all the rest of it. And um, you might just say, well, how often do you use your ankle? Turns out quite a bit. Or say, well, you know, I haven't really given my kidneys much thought. Yeah, well, if they go wrong, trust me, you'll be thinking a lot about them. See, whenever your back goes or some part of your body goes, it severely limits the rest of the body. The body needs every part working together in harmony for it to function properly. And so often it can start by someone repenting by someone being able to say sorry, and it is so hard to say, but it goes a long way. Harmony in the body. He strengthens us together, and that happens when we fix our eyes on him. He establishes us. Number two, he commissions us. Oh, sorry, that's blacked out for some reason. Um, We're highlighting song lyrics, and we're, we're unhighlighting those things. I don't know what's going on tonight. But in verse 21, we read that he anointed us. See, the people who were anointed in Scripture were priests and kings. And the idea that of being anointed was you were set aside for service. That's what it meant to be anointed. You were anointed as a priest to serve. You were anointed as a king to serve. You were anointed towards service. He wants each Christian serving one another. Now listen to me very carefully, church. Listen to me very carefully. A Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. A Christian without a ministry is a contradiction. Now, by ministry, I don't mean preaching or teaching. I don't mean you have to be a full-time evangelist or anything. It means you could be anointed to work in tough circumstances and represent him in your estate, to represent him in your family, to represent him in your place of work. But listen, every single person is called, every single person is anointed and commissioned by God to do something. You've got to do it. He establishes us. He commissions us. Number three, he seals us. I promise you, it's up there. (coughs) Being sealed means he owns us. Back in the ancient world, they would seal a letter or parcel by melting wax over it and then putting their insignia ring, their mark, their their emblem onto it. And uh, it was sealed. They put their seal on it. It's mine. It belongs to me. The Bible says we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Ephesians 1.13 says that you, when you responded to the gospel, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The, the seal gives us identity. We belong to Christ. That seal, now, if you think of that tinfoil seal on, on a carton of milk, if that seal's been broken, <laughs> you know that something's happened to the milk inside. You would never buy milk if the seal was broken, right? Because you know someone's tampered with it. But if the seal is still intact, you know what's inside is good and preserved. Paul says, as believers, we are sealed because God has sealed us. Number four, he guarantees us. 
that spirit in us that seals us is a down payment. So he establishes us, he commissions us, he protects us, and he guarantees us. You know what a deposit is, of course, don't you? A deposit means that you put some money down knowing that you will collect in full in time. The New Living Translation phrases verse 22 like this. He says, He has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. Right. So our Christian life now is not the full experience. We don't have uh, the best parts of our walk with God, the best parts of, it mean, of what it means to rejoice and to serve and, and to know him and to love him, the best experiences that you have in your Christian life. That's just a taste an installment, a, a little bit to know of what is, it's going to be like in heaven. That down payment, that first installment, a deposit, a guarantee of what is to come. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. No one has a clue but we've got a deposit, we've got a taster. So do you see what Paul's done here in these verses? He opens up his heart. He's happy to admit that he has suffered, but also that he's been comforted and now wants to comfort them, even though they were the ones who were causing him so much of the hurt. Yet Paul is able to focus on the comfort more than the pain. For Paul, it's the love and grace that he sees first. So let me just put read on a bit into chapter 2 because chapter 2 starts I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you for if I cause you pain who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained here's his argument like you've made such a big deal about me not coming to you but if I had have come it would have been in anger and it would have been another painful visit and I didn't want to rehash it I didn't want to have the same fights I didn't want to get into the same old stuff again I couldn't do that I'd have given you a piece of my mind and so be glad that I didn't show up whenever I did I didn't want to come in sorrow I want to come to you in joy I want to come to you with joy I want to come and receive joy what a, what a heart Paul has here and may this encourage you to look up, may it encourage you to act differently when people misunderstand you or your plans or think, oh, well, you said this. Well, I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. And may, may I just encourage you in times like that, look up. Look up. And see that even in this, God, God has a plan for it. Let's, let's, um, Let's get the musicians up again. Uh, we'll, we'll do one more, and then I'll come up again and close in prayer. All right, Joe? So, uh, guys, if you just want to come up, we'll sing another piece, and then pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sure we've all got plans for this week, ideas of how it will go, whether it's school or uni or work or meeting up for coffee or, or jobs that we want to get done around the house and all the rest of it. Lord, help us to be flexible. Lord, help us to respond to your will for our lives. Lord, help us to see the bigger picture in things. Lord, help us to be slow to maybe criticize people for whenever they, their plans change. Um, and Lord, help us. <laughs> Lord, just help, help a spirit of unity among us. 
Lord, whether it's with family or whether it's with friends. Lord, help us to stop fixating on the people who may be disappointed and frustrated. But Lord, help us to lift our eyes above the mess, above the noise, onto the one who never fails us, to the one who never lets us down, to the one who does exceedingly and abundantly more than we could even ask or imagine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would elevate us tonight. And Lord, we pray even just now as we go down and have, we'll have tea and coffee, Lord, help us to be an encouragement to one another. And Lord, help us to, to enjoy our time together, Lord, even tonight. And so, Lord, we ask this in your name. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.